and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. About a month ago, Juneteenth became a federal holiday. Juneteenth marks the day when federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas on June 19, 1865 to announce the end of slavery. This announcement came two and a half years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation and a month after the official conclusion of the Civil War. While the federal recognition of Juneteenth, the longest running African-American holiday, was and is an important step in acknowledging the legacy of slavery, especially during this time when we have a tax on critical race theory, this acknowledgement of the country's original sin does little to tangibly address the continued effects of slavery, Jim Crow, and segregation on the African-American community. And a major condition that exists in this country as a result of the free labor, the enslaved were forced to provide whites and the continued state-sponsored discrimination against African-American is the racial wealth gap. The racial wealth gap cannot be closed by piecemeal governmental programs and an increasing number of people have joined in efforts to demand reparations for the many years of forced labor by our ancestors and the laws and policies specifically designed to harm black economic interests. On tonight's show, we're going to discuss the huge wealth gap that presently exists in the United States between African-Americans and whites and the need for reparations. Joining us tonight to discuss these topics are Dr. Henry McCoy, professor at NCCU School of Business and the former Assistant Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Commerce, and attorney Nikita Bailey, Senior Vice President of Public Policy at the National Fair Housing Alliance. So thank you both for taking your time and sharing with us as we discuss this very important issue. So let's first start with helping our audience understand the racial wealth gap. So this term is, is used quite a bit, uh, but a lot of people don't understand what it is and how it really came to be. So, so let's start there. Um, Dr. McCoy, let's start with you. Okay, well, great, great to be here with you um, too and on Legal Eagle. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, this is a critically important topic, uh, this, this idea of the racial wealth gap. And I just put a little bit of a, a, a quick context to it. Um, you know, we often talk about the racial wealth when we see um, stats about home ownership, things of that nature. And, and that certainly is a, is a critical part of this in terms of the, the gap between the, the black community's home ownership and, and the white community and, and others. But you know, I always like to look a little bit broader. It's much broader than that. I mean, it's you know, other kinds of real estate. It's, it's business ownership. 
it's things that 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 you know really contribute to the assets of the overall community. And so, um, I, I, the racial wealth gap is, is is pretty pretty substantial. And you know, I just kind of give one um, kind of aspect. You know, we all about this idea of um, you know ten to one, where you know for every one dollar blacks have, whites have about ten dollars. Other estimates may put it up closer to seventeen to one. But you know, one of the statistics that stood out to me about a year or so ago in the middle of the pandemic, um, um, August of 2020, Jeff Bezos, who we know to be the, the, the recent step down CEO of Amazon, but he's still the executive secretary, the richest man in the world. Um, Jeff Bezos's um, net worth reached over $200 billion in August of, of 2020. Um, that was after he had to give up 25% of his uh, ownership stake to his, to his ex-wife, um, Mackenzie Scott, who then by that 25, she became, uh, you know, by most estimates, the wealthiest woman on the planet, having about 65 billion. Now keep that in mind, when I did an estimate of the 3 million black businesses in the United States, the total revenue of those 3 million black businesses, not the total profit, the total revenue of those 3 million black businesses collectively um, uh, only totaled up to around $190 billion. So Jeff Bezos as one individual had more, um, worth than 3 million black businesses across the United States. And so just give you some context of just how big the wealth gap is. Thank you for that. Attorney Bailey. And, and if I could just maybe give just a little bit of context, we know that this was not the result of an accident. We've got to talk about how our country actually created wealth and equality. In fact, our ancestors were brought here so that we might work for others. And we've created wealth um, for them, right? So enslavement of African people in the United States at the founding of the nation really built considerable wealth for the nation. And then following that, we have been again, um, the forces of wealth for the nation. And I'll start with the 1862 Homestead Act. You had this single piece of legislation that was designed to help spur growth of the Western parts of the United States. 20% of the white families that actually benefited from that 1862 legislation can trace their family's wealth to that single legislative act. Then you follow up with that, with you know all the other things that happened since then. The the you know you talk about in North Carolina the Wilmington race coup, where you had an overthrow of a local government, um, and you had a displacement of the people in their businesses. And then when you talk about what happened after the Great um, Depression, when we created these New Deal initiatives that were actually very centered and policies that really excluded Black families from opportunity. We have a situation where we did center property ownership and home ownership, quite frankly, as a form of wealth building to create a new American middle class. And in doing that, we explicitly excluded African-Americans and other people of color. And when you look at that legislation in the first 35 years of the FHA insured program, which is the program that really expanded home ownership access for most white Americans. And at the time, those white Americans were newly immigrants from European nations. The first 35 years of that program only 2% 
of those mortgages, those mortgages that were low cost, small um, mortgages that didn't have excessive rates and fees, only 2% of those mortgages went to black people and other people of color. So what we did as we use public policy to really give whites a head start and an advantage that they've been able to really benefit from. So we have a situation where, as Dr. McCoy said, Blacks only have, you know, about 10 cents for every dollar of wealth that whites have. So whites have 10 times the wealth of, of African-Americans overall. And so much of that is rooted in our, you know, ancestors' former enslavement and in the way we've distributed property. And, and I just want to take us a bit um, beyond my expertise, and I'm actually going to ask Professor Joyner for, for some of his in, in this instance. We know that voting is so connected to property, right? The original voters were white male property owners in our country. So these systemic things are interwoven and interconnected. And when we're talking about wealth and, and assets, we, we've got to center them in a conversation about American democracy. Well, you know, you know thank you for that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, uh, that thought. That there. And, and it just dawned on me, you know, in response, that uh, up until uh, 1835 in North Carolina, uh, Africa, free Africans uh, in this uh, state uh, could vote uh, because they had, uh, they had property. They were not uh, enslaved and they fit the definition, the constitutional definition of uh, property uh, owners and uh, were allowed to uh, participate in the uh, political uh, franchise. And in 1835, the North Carolina General Assembly made the decision that uh, they no longer wanted uh, these uh, free Africans uh, to be able to vote, but rather they wanted to be like all of the other Southern states uh, where uh, the uh, political franchise was uh, denied uh, to those individuals. But then that, that sparked though in, in my mind uh, a question about, uh, you know, as we talk about coming out of, of slavery, where there were a large number of uh, uh, African-Americans, free Africans or formerly enslaved Africans who owned property, uh, who owned land, who owned houses and, uh, and, 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 and businesses. And I, I want to just ask the, the, the two of you to talk about the extent of Black land laws that has uh, occurred uh, over, over the years and the contributions that uh, African-Americans have made to that land loss by virtually giving it up and uh, letting, it, uh, letting it go uh, to the extent that it can be legally challenged uh, by those who came along to, uh, to take advantage of our lapses. Well, I, I offer something, I, I think that, um... You know, Attorney Bailey offers some 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 incredible kind of insights into kind of how we we got here, and and you know we know it wasn't um, you know one or two things; it was a, a, a litany of things that really came together around that. And so um, you know, it's not only this idea of of you know getting giving the white community, particularly white males, head the head start, but I mean it's, it's almost like you know them on steroids. And then at the same time, it's not even just holding black you know the black Community back, it's actually pushing them back. Um, you know, we we talk about right now, uh, you know, in, in North Carolina and all, all, all across across the country, we're 
kind of um, in the midst of these wars around critical race theory and we're in the middle of these kind of wars around what can be taught in school and what can't be taught in school. You know, the interesting thing about it is that, you know, we can kind of debate about this idea of whether a, a teacher or, or someone should, um, you know, kind of editorialize or, or, you know, kind of offer subjectivity as they teach, which I mean, it's hard in some ways not to when you want to offer context. But beyond that, I mean, they're trying to outlaw actual factual teaching, right? I mean, these are actual facts that, I mean, and so I mentioned that because so many of the things that, that that attorney Bailey talked about, as well as others, I mean, we're talking about policy here, right? We're talking about home ownership policy. We're talking about education policy. We're talking about all these kind of things. We also, you know, there's so such a crucial, critical kind of background around this whole end piece, you know, that 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 mystical 40 acres of mule um, in, in terms of kind of what what happened. And so uh, I, I, I speak quickly to 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 your question, uh, Herb, because um, you know there's been a combination of things that. that that we've seen that has driven kind of land loss, um, you know, to such high, high levels. I mean, we know, for example, um, you know, the, the black farmers and the issues they had for years and trying to get access to, to, to loans and couldn't get loans and white farmers getting paid subsidies for not farming and black farmers are, you know, losing land. I think we also think about this idea of, you mentioned kind of the, the you know black wealth there was actually you know there were free blacks in the south and they actually owned um they actually owned property right? i mean they had wealth i mean there was you know 50 million or so dollars in 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 wealth that was uh, owned by free blacks before the civil war um and then if you think about over time uh you know um attorney bailey talked about the wilmington um, um massacre and, and what happened there you know it was one of the wealthiest um you know communities in north carolina for blacks because it was on the waterfront we all we all know about tulsa right we just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the tulsa massacre and um, but then it was also the red summer i mean in 1919 you had you know 40 or 50 communities destroyed um you know with white rage and and, and property taken and so all those kind of things have you know have taken land they've taken uh destroyed um wealth destroyed ownership and then obviously we also have um, you know, over time, we've seen situations where families who, you know, particularly future generations as they as they collectively inherit land, and then all of a sudden you go from, you know, one or two landowners to, you know, four and eight and 10 and whole family. We've seen this in South Carolina with, with some of that property and, and the challenge of holding on to that because somebody wants to sell and somebody wants to keep and, and then folks aren't, but folks aren't paying taxes and all that kind of stuff. So it's really a litany of things. Um, that 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 uh, speaks to that, and I'm sure Attorney Bailey has some thoughts as well. Absolutely. Um, we know that following, um, you know, the opportunities to expand opportunity in the the country, right? The the, the Reconstruction period, African Americans did build um, considerable opportunity for themselves. And when you look at kind of the percentage of Black farmers, um, we were probably about 20% of all farmers in the United States because of land loss issues. We're in a situation where there are less than 2% of farmland that's owned by Black people today. And we know that those policies, again, go to um, 
you know, federal policies, quite frankly, those farmers were not able to get access to the um, type of funding that they needed from financial institutions to really care for their farms. Like you, you mentioned, they were discouraged um, from opportunity while others were um, given subsidy to, to really subsidize them not actually taking certain um, actions related to that. And I think you're right, right? We know that the field order 55 said that we were supposed to be entitled 40 acres and a mule after um, slavery. However, that never really materialized. Instead, we face black holes and so much other types of terrorism. And I think we talk about the South a lot, but we, we, we've got to talk about other places outside of the South. Um, we saw this terrorism as far as Oregon. We, we hardly ever talk about that. Um, black settlers tried to you know, migrate across the nation as well, and they, they faced the Ku Klux Klan in, in those areas as well. So this is not just a Southern phenomenon. You know, we're talking about places like, you know, Chicago, Illinois, Elaine, um, Arkansas, um, where, you know, we're talking about places across the country where, quite frankly, um, African-Americans faced real terrorism and a threat to um, becoming full citizens. And that's why I tied it into voting, because we've got to understand that democracy and power um, are rooted in wealth distribution. And typically the people who have had the ability to control the wealth have also controlled um, the democratic institutions. And, and we need to really connect the dots across these movements because we're all doing similar work from different angles um, about basic citizenship, quite frankly. Uh, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And uh, we're talking about the racial uh, wealth gap and, uh, and reparations. Our guest uh, this evening, uh, Dr. Henry McCoy, who is a professor at the NCCU School of Business and is the former assistant secretary of the North Carolina Department of Commerce and attorney Nikitra Bailey, who is the senior vice president of public policy at the National Fair Housing Alliance. So we're gonna uh, continue this discussion and want you to stay with us. This is a very important uh, discussion that we are having uh, this evening and one uh, which you should benefit mightily from. So we'll be right back. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. Okay, we're back on the uh, 
Legal Legal Review, where we are continuing our conversation about uh, the uh, racial wealth gap and uh, and reparations. We have two experts uh, with us uh, this uh, this evening uh, to uh, give us their uh, history, background, and the wealth of their knowledge uh, about this uh, about this topic. Attorney Nikitra Bailey, who is the senior vice president of public policy at the National Fair Housing Alliance, and Dr. Henry McCoy, who is the uh, president uh, professor of the NCCU School of Business and the former assistant secretary of the North Carolina Department of, uh, of Commerce. And Dr. McCoy is uh, engaged in a very uh, energetic uh, program in Durham uh, that uh, seeks to uh, address some of the uh, wealth gap uh, issues. But before we get to, to that discussion, I want to raise, you know, because you, you, you provided us with a, a wide history, geographically uh, uh, immersed uh, history of where uh, this uh, wealth gap uh, uh, originated uh, from. Uh, can you kind of talk about the impact of uh, education or the lack of education on perpetuating uh, this uh, uh, racial uh, wealth gap? And then, uh, and then we will move on to uh, some other topics in this regard. So uh, Attorney Bailey, you want to start us out? Absolutely. Um, I think as we talk about homeownership policy and how it's been inequitable and a driver of wealth, we also have to talk about education policy. We know that many of the nation's land grant institutions, quite frankly, were started with the use of public funding. Um, we know um, because of our history um, with our HBCUs that that public funding hasn't even um, been dismantled disseminated to our institutions on an equitable um, level. And we have a situation today where, you know, in states across the country where there are historically black colleges and universities, those schools are literally suing um, their state legislatures for adequate funding of, of those institutions. We also know that we've never had equal education um, funding. Um, part of the struggle that we had um, related to Brown versus the Board of Education was that we were getting inadequate funding um, as well as um, being excluded from institutions and the resources that they brought. And while the Higher Education Act and you know, other pieces of legislation opened up educational opportunity. The moment we started to really enter into higher education in mass, when we actually started to have access to opportunity, we saw a retreat from that commitment to higher education. So instead of states equitably funding um, higher education, we've seen states really draw back from that funding. And we have a situation today where we have a student loan debt crisis, right? Student loan debt across the board has reached about $1.7 trillion across the whole board. But for Black students in particular, this debt is crushing. We, we tend to have to borrow more because of that exclusion in housing and, and home ownership. Like, what white families are able to do with home ownership is they're able to leverage that wealth to, to pull from it to pay for higher education, to pull from it to start a business. But for Black families, each of our generations typically have to start anew because we've not had that equitable opportunity and there isn't this intergenerational wealth transfer. So our students typically are borrowing more. And when they actually leave college, we see their debt grow substantially. So you would think that they would 
leave college and be able to pay that debt off. The reality is because of the labor market and labor discrimination, we often get paid lower um, hourly wages or salaried um, benefits. So we typically have less and then we have that higher level of debt. So we've seen student loan debt crush um, Black students across the nation. And many of us have called for the current administration to cancel $50,000 in student loan debt to really reset and give people a level playing field and an opportunity to really fully participate in the economy, um, which would lift up the economy overall. Yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, there's so much that, that, that Attorney Bailey just said. I mean, we, you know, listen, I mean, we could talk about this topic for like half a day and just kind of begin. But, you know, when you talk about the idea of, the higher education piece and, and, the, and the student debt and mentioned that that you know um, has impacts on home ownership it has impact on business creation but also we know that you know that students they take out um, <clears throat> you know student debt they get their refund checks and then they sometimes have to send those home right i mean you know they're they're helping to pay for for past issues uh, uh, around inequities and so so you know it, it kind of keeps going and and the other the thing i'd like to say i mean all these things are so intertwined as Attorney Bader said, you know, you looking back at things like the GI Bill and those things that 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 helped to kind of really um, you know put put um, you know fire and wings beneath the white community and, and excludes the black community. But even to the day, we just talked in the last segment about you know the loss of property ownership, things of that nature. Gentrification still happens, right? So you go from a situation where you you have disinvestment or no investment in a community. Which then um, um, takes the wealth of that community down. Um, you know, human capital leaves, social capital leaves, um, and then we also know from a standpoint of um, you know um, primary and secondary education. I mean, primary education, uh, you know, K through twelve and things of that nature. They're funded by property taxes in those communities, right? And so that then um, has a direct impact on um, the educational uh, quality that that folks are getting. So these things are all so. Uh, you know, intertwine, and then on top of that, uh, you know, what we see in Durham, see in Durham, of course, is, you know, in other places, is gentrification, right? So you, you decrease the value of community, um, and then uh, it becomes a hot spot because it becomes a place where folks come in and they buy, and that then goes back to, you know, we talked about the the red summer, we talked about, you know, Tulsa and, and Wilmington, but then we know that there so many other communities and so much wealth was was destroyed by the, the interstate highway systems that ran through these black communities. Um, you took single family homes and land, turned into public housing projects and, and called somehow that that's supposed to be uh, equal. And so so this thing is just so wrapped up in history um, that, that, you know, you have to really unpack all these things, understand just how we got to this point. Let me just raise one one other, you know, uh, as we talk about education and, uh, and, and Professor McCoy, you, or at the uh, NCCU uh, School of, of, of Business. Uh, but one of my uh, pet peeves that I've had over the years is that with respect to education for African-Americans, our focus typically has been on preparing our uh, students to, uh, to get jobs, uh, to get into the uh, employment uh, system, as opposed to uh, owning and creating businesses and developing uh, communities. Uh, and the wealth gap is not gonna be cured by wages. Uh, it's, it, 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 it is to have any real impact. It has to be through uh, ownership and business enterprises and investments and things of that nature. Uh, 
what is it that our educational system need to do uh, to make this turn from preparing workers to preparing owners and entrepreneurs? Well, look, you, you speak in my language, right? I mean, I, I lead the entrepreneurship program at uh, NCCU, so I need to, we need to take that clip so I can play it and get, get I will say this, um, you know, entrepreneurship is, is the fastest growing major across the university and um, certainly within School of Business. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, we have to go from a, a wage mentality to a, a ownership mentality. And I think a couple things about that. I know when I grew up, I grew up here in eastern North Carolina. And, you know, my parents raised me to, you know, it's, it was always go get that education, get that good job, right? I mean, that was kind of the way that, that things were framed. I think also we look looking at history. I mean, just the reality of it. Um, Black folks, um, as Attorney Bailey said at the very outset, I mean, Black folks are brought here to work, right? And I think that that kind of framework has continued. I mean, even the way we do education, we, you know, when I was growing up, you know, in the 80s, and you know, had the presidential physical fitness field day because they were trying to make sure folks could, you know, you know, could move boxes and factories and, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the 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 way education has has kind of wrapped around the community is, is based on serving the, the broader population, but I this entrepreneurship piece is, is so critical. I often talk about, um, you know, the, this particular issue that, that you know, um, you know what, I, what I, I think is critically important for us at HBCUs in places like this is really to teach our students, um, instead of just how to navigate the world that, that we live in, is how to create the world that we want. I mean, it's certainly important to, to, to you know, understand uh, the systems that we have, but we need to create the systems that we want, and I see that at, at, at PWIs, and 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 so um, entrepreneurship is certainly one of those key aspects because we really have to work to train our our, our future generations, our, our current generations, on how to you know create the the, the wealth mechanisms um, for us that we've seen elsewhere. And so, so you're absolutely right. I mean, entrepreneurship is is key to that because once you uh, I, I talked about, you know, Jeff Bezos' wealth, and, and I could go on and on. I mean, you know, there's thousands of white billionaires. Uh, there's only, uh, you know, seven black billionaires in the United States, and, and five of those are entertainment. Uh, and, and so we've seen that connection over time. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, 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 you preach into the choir, Irvin, and that's certainly something we have to look at, not only from a business standpoint, what I spend a lot of time on is looking at, you know, we, we, we know we have a, a, a large um, number of folks who are creating businesses in the black community, but it's the idea of scaling those businesses and, and you know, that, that can hire people and change community. That's where we have to actually move forward. So, so yeah, that's critically important. I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for this point about businesses because I think it, again, it takes us back to that discussion. I mean, in Durham, North Carolina, we had a black wall street, right? Like we, we've always been a people of entrepreneurial spirit. Um, there have been black wall streets all across the country. The challenges that we've had though, again, public policy, we have not had access to the credit to grow and scale those businesses in the same way. So, you know, when you look at the um, small business administration and, and all the lending that, that has been done, um, even before before we got to this COVID-19, and I'm going to talk about the Paycheck Protection Program in some detail, but even before we got to COVID-19, Black businesses were locked out of those programs. Um, they, they just did not have access to the funding to do the things um, like grow their businesses. And we have to be honest that those Black small businesses in our communities are some of the major economic pillars, right? Like they are the job creators in our community. They hire the people in, in our communities. 
So, so public policy and banks um, redlining, quite frankly, of our community and refusing to lend to us to purchase homes or to grow and scale our businesses um, is a reality. Much of our small businesses has been bootstrapped by our own um, savings. That's not the same um, story for, for a lot of white businesses quite frankly. And then when you talk about what happened during this um, global pandemic and the onset of COVID-19, we saw through the Paycheck Protection Program, a program set up um, that really was designed in a way that disadvantaged um, the smallest of small businesses. Because of that history um, that we discussed just recently, our businesses are very single employee owned firm. The Paycheck Protection Program was set up to really benefit large scale firms that could really hire accountants and help them figure out how to navigate their process. They had those existing commercial banking relationships and many of our businesses, you know, they went to their local banks and they were told to get in the back of the line. So in the first round of that PPP where we saw $350 billion um, administered, we know that we missed out on that opportunity. And we saw 40% of Black-owned businesses from the onset of the pandemic um, through some time, we saw 40% of those businesses become inactive. So again, public policy has really strengthened and reinforced opportunities for white-owned businesses, but missed an opportunity to provide that equity. So in my, my work, we fought to make sure that um, lenders that well lend to communities of color got access to those funds. However, that still came after the fact. We were we were done with the first round when we started to see um, more equitable distribution. So we, we literally just witnessed one of the largest taxpayer funded wealth transfers in our country where black people were excluded and, and again excluded because of discriminatory policy, right? Like we, we were more impacted by COVID, not by coincidence, but because of that history of segregation, we saw those greater health disparities. Um, our people were not in a position where we were in the sectors um, that you could work at home safely and, and be, you know, okay. We were in the service sectors, right? Because traditionally those have been the only sectors of the marketplace where we could find equity and employment. And, and when you talk about the service sectors and wealth equity, we've got to talk about things like the social security administration, like our ancestors, our grandmothers don't qualify for social security insurance. I mean, people don't even understand that, that, that the policies were written in such a way that they were so service workers, and all service workers were excluded from those public benefits. So again, public policy is determining who has and who does not. You two have been dropping um, such great information and the knowledge and um, Attorney Bailey, you were just saying that people don't understand. Um, Dr. McCoy, you were mentioning that, you know, we're in a time now where there is an effort to try and not teach the, the accurate history. And as we kind of think about reparations, and we'll, we'll get to that in our next segment, before you can have momentum when it comes to reparations, there has to be an understanding of this history that both of you have done a magnificent job of helping to explain. But we don't know, right? We don't know collectively as African-Americans, we certainly don't know collectively as um, uh, citizens and people in the United States. Can you talk a little bit, and I know we're going to have to take a, a quick break, but when we come back, I'd like for you all to talk very briefly before we start talking about reparations 
about the absolute need to share this information and educate all of us, um, including those in the African-American community. Because when we talk about reparations, there are still many of us uh, who are certainly entitled to it that you know, don't think that it is um, necessary, that it is warranted. Because again, they don't have an understanding of the history and the government sponsored goal to try and harm black economic interests. But we're going to have to take a quick break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour with our wonderful guest, attorney Nikitra Bailey. She is a senior vice president of public policy at the National Fair Housing Alliance. And Dr. Henry McCoy, professor of the NCCU School of Business and former assistant secretary of the North Carolina Department of Commerce. We're going to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. There's a lot more to come. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Dr. Henry McCoy, professor at the NCCU School of Business and former assistant secretary of the North Carolina Department of Commerce and attorney Nikitra Bailey, senior vice president of public policy at the National Fair Housing Alliance. And we've been talking this hour about the racial wealth gap, why we have it, why it needs to be addressed. And we'll be moving into this last segment and also talking about reparations, the need for reparations. Um, And before we shift gears, uh, I'd like both of you to just share your thoughts about the lack of, of education on this particular aspect of, uh, of history of this country and the deliberate impact and roadblocks that have been placed in front of African-Americans in terms of building wealth. Professor Dawson, you mentioned that we we don't know. Um, we don't want to know, right? Like, look at what just happened at um, UNC, quite frankly. Um, we have a situation where you have this brilliant scholar that's in a position to come be a part of our um, higher education system and to really teach and lead our kids. But we're, we're afraid of what it is she's shedding light on, which is nothing but the truth about the nation's founding, right? Like, we, we can't build forward if we don't really acknowledge the reality that America 
it's not um, just this place of opportunity for everyone equitably that we have systemically set up a country with the foundation of enslavement and other atrocities to other um, communities, quite frankly, um, that that have really harmed our 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 economic standing, but most importantly, the ability of people to really participate as full citizens in, in our nation. So I, I look at this as an opportunity for all of us to really pull back the veils and have conversations. We're, we're afraid of critical race theory, but it is simply the ability to look at the systems and to figure out how we need to change them so that we can have more equitable, not equal. None of us have said we all have to be the same. We've said that there's time for equity um, at this moment. And I think the people-led protests from last summer especially show that all across this country, people, period, um, support equitable opportunities. And we want our government to work for all of us, not only public policies working for some of us. Yeah, and I, I, I piggyback off that. And certainly, I think we have to understand really how this our ecosystem that we that we know to be our um, you know America and, and the world global economic system was built. Uh, I, I think that you know there are all kinds of ways that we are educated. We're educated you know in classrooms. We're educated on you know media. All those kind of things that feed us these stories. And, and to to Attorney Bailey's point, I mean you know that's what things like the sixteen nineteen project is uh, meant to to focus on, right? I I, I try to um, ground my work in this understanding that 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 you know our system was created what i call inequity by design right i mean it wasn't it wasn't by happening i mean it was by design and you have to actually understand what that design looks like and you know for you know i'm a i'm a scholar in the economic and business standpoint for much of the academic world i mean for much of the academic life cycle of the economic development um, um kind of core curriculum things of that nature there was this disclaimer that somehow slavery had a real impact on on the on the wealth of and, and economic development in America. Now, how ridiculous is that? I mean, that that was the actual scholarship saying that slavery somehow was more of a side thing that it really didn't have a, a huge role in the wealth creation of America. So I say that to say that not only that is that not true, but capitalism as we know it was built around slavery. I mean, you know, the the first mortgages that that folks had, they weren't nobody was getting mortgages on houses. I mean but they had mortgages on slaves the same way we could take equity out of a house you could take equity out of a slave you could borrow against a slave that's how they brought other slaves i mean the same way we think about flipping houses and things of that nature i mean so all these systems that we that we now know to be kind of just aspects of of capitalism uh in our economic system they were built around slavery uh even we talked in the break about technology well the first technology systems were around ways to suppress black folks and keep them in tech and so I say all that to say that we don't, that, that's the kind of history that we have to understand and know if we're going to get to the point where we recognize what needs to happen from a, a reparative justice aspect and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a reparation standpoint. I'm so grateful you talked about the um, bodies of enslaved Africans being the foundation of um, the financial services system in our country, because that's something that we hardly ever talk about. And that's why the 1619 Project is so brilliant. There is uh, an essay titled, If You Want to Understand the Brutalism of American Capitalism, You Have to Go Back to the Plantation. Um, so much knowledge and wealth of information are, are in um, those different essays um, that are part of the 1619 Project. And Nicole Hannah 
Brianna Jones is just brilliant and what she's been able to do in terms of elevating a conversation so we can talk honestly about our country's history where we've never, um, quite frankly, asked for um, things that we're not deserving of, right? Like we're simply fighting for our fair share, quite frankly. And we have to be honest that so much of our work and our labor has been used to really build wealth and, and opportunity for others. Angela Rye often says, we built this joint for free. And what she means by that is that our ancestors never were fully paid. Um, we were robbed of, of our labor, quite frankly. And that labor and that wealth has driven opportunity that we still see manifest um, today. And we, we have to start there um, if we're going to have this conversation. And that's why HR 40 is so critical, kind of transitioning us into this conversation about reparations. Um, Congressman John Conyers for years um, before Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, who's doing a tremendous job with pushing this, this, um, this opportunity forward with us, has been talking about the need to study reparations, to figure out what it is we actually need to do and how we need to do it. And we have to remind everyone that um, field order number 55 that Sherman promised that 50 acres in a mew, I'm sorry, that 40 acres in a mew has never been um, delivered on. So we've had each generation not building from from a foundation so we, we we've got to tell the truth so that we can get past this so that we can actually be um an america as good as the ideals um of of the nation look i, I take those 50 acres in the future in the future but uh but i want to tell real quickly that you think about right this moment this whole nil name image and, and likeness that's going on with the ncaa right um, and, and with college athletes but think about how many billions and billions and billions of dollars have been made off the images and black uh, black athletes over time to just get to this point. And, and you still have folks fighting and Chris against. And again, I, I mentioned that just, just because, I mean, we just, we, we uh, Attorney Bailey talked about this whole history of building the our system of, of black labor. I mean, we've seen that in, in different ways that, you know, in different angles, right? And so again, just the fight that it took to get to this point right this moment, um, of, you know, the, the, this NCLA uh, legislation, uh, you know, it, it just shows that, that Black folks have, for the, our whole history of relationship with America, have been put in situations of being used to create wealth and dramatic wealth for other folks. So. And we, we've got to look at when we do get into systems. And that's why I got really animated when you talked about, um, you know, the financial service system really being undergirded by um, the enslavement of African people. Like even the Great Recession and the subprime lending crisis where we saw Black families and other families of color qualify for credit to, you know, do the things with a home like refinance to pay for college, refinance to start a business. We saw our communities get swindled, quite frankly. Um, people were stared into loans that were toxic and dangerous and that took away their home equity as opposed to allowing them to build it up. So they would qualify for loans on safer and more affordable terms. And instead they were steered into products that were dangerous and risky. And that's why we saw that preponderance of foreclosure in our community that drove down um, you know, the value of housing in our neighborhoods, but not only in our neighborhoods, across the country. So our communities lost a trillion dollars of wealth as a result of the Great Recession and that unnecessary um, activity that happened. And stuff could have 
happened to prevent that, right? Like we had gone to the Congress asking to rein those abusive practices in, but it wasn't until the entire economy suffered that we saw some kind of reaction, but the reaction came too late for us because we actually saw a high level of foreclosure starting in 2006. The, the overall market didn't crash until 2008. So by the time the federal policies came to rescue the market, it did not lift us up. And that's why in this COVID moment, we have to fight for equitable solutions for our communities. We have to make sure that everything that we're working for will be equitably applied. And, and, and that's why I'm really excited about some of the work I've been privileged to be a part of. We've just worked um, in um, advocacy to work with the Congress in the American Rescue Plan. There is $10 billion um, in that plan for homeowners who have been hardest hit by COVID-19. And for the very first time, there is a provision that says those funds have to go to communities that are defined as socially disadvantaged. Um, and there's an SBA definition as to what it means to be socially disadvantaged and many black families and Latinos and other families of color fall within <laughs> that definition. So we have to build policies that are equitable um, that get at making sure we get the support and the relief that we deserve as well. Well, you know, the, the, this whole conversation makes it sound like this is such a daunting uh, proposition that uh, we are dealing with. And every time that there is some governmental policy that is designed to address any portion of it, uh, that uh, policy is then challenged on equal protection grounds, uh, where now uh, these whites who have benefited uh, historically uh, from these uh, programs are now uh, raising legal claims that that is uh, discrimination uh, based, on, uh, based on race. How do we deal with that? Well, well, the government has a compelling interest, right? So, so we have to demonstrate that there is a compelling governmental interest to have these race-conscious policies. And we in our community um, have to be very specific about that. The records have been set. The research has been done. Congress um, should you know, call forward these reports to really demonstrate the federal government's role in these discriminatory and exclusionary policies. Because once that's done, the government can demonstrate that it has a compelling interest to really provide these race-conscious specific remedies. And, and we have to push for them um, in the way that, you know, I think about the March on Washington, and, and, and that's connected to this conversation and that that was a march for jobs and freedom, right? They were intertwined. So the work that we see Dr. Barbara and so many other brilliant activists across the country doing today around the Poor People's Campaign, you know, is building off of A. Philip Randolph's um, a. Philip Randolph is claim to, to President Roosevelt to make him do it. We have to mobilize, um, and that's why I keep talking about voting. We have to hold our public um, officials accountable, and we have to call for and demand the justice um, that our communities have long, long ago deserved. You know, in, in hearing both of you kind of talk about not just the history, but, but what is happening current day in terms of the disparity um, that we're seeing in the African-American community. Not only do we have to be vigilant with uh, policies that are taking place right now, but of course also redress the harm, the financial economic harm that we've suffered because of the past. Can we, there are some people who think that we can, um, the government can create programs that address these issues and there's not a need for reparations. Can both of you respond to that, that claim? 
So I, I'm I'm certainly um, one in favor. I, I don't think programs take the place of actual um, financial resources and things of that nature. I mean, I think that you know that's what we we've seen so long. If you and there's a there's actually an interesting policy history around how we got to the point in philan uh, uh, philanthropy as that we are and, and how why um, um, foundations can't give money directly to individuals. It has to give it through a intermediary intermediary all these kind of things. I think that that is critically important that, that we look at the actual economic harm and how that kind of investment needs to happen in order to move the community forward. And I said, you know, just kind of briefly a couple of things. I get a chance to work with, uh, you know, brilliant William Sandy Darity, who, who you know, who does so much work around you know reparations and and things of that nature. And you know, he and he thinks about reparations with the capital R, right? You know, the federal government what they owe. I think there's a whole lot, I always, me and Sandy I always kind of debate, I said there's a whole lot of blame to go around, right, at the local level, the state level, and I think that, you know, one of the things that we, we should certainly focus on is, is for one, that, that, you know, reparations historically have focused around the idea of somebody had direct and specific harm, right, but I think you can also make the case for the harm of the that community's broader ecosystem, right? So just because you know the folks who in Tulsa who got who really got burned out of their homes are no longer alive doesn't mean that there wasn't real impact to future generations. So I think we need to broaden that sense of who can get reparations. I say the other thing about that for me is that you know just being in the economic space, um, you know I, I look at how the economic black community has been hollowed out over time. Uh, I think we there's a preparation for a reparation that we have to have because if you drop a, a, a whole lot of money, trillions of dollars into the black community right now, you know the infrastructure is not there to recapture that money in in a significant way or the way that we need to, to create further wealth. And so I think that this has got to be an ongoing kind of process, and it has to have financial capital at the center of it because that's how we build wealth in the in the country. And and we've got to be honest that we've never positioned um, accountability. What, what reparations is, is just a call for accountability. We've always ended segregation, discrimination, and all the economic harms without making the people who suffer from those harms whole. So reparations is simply calling for the making of the people harmed whole. Um, lawyers understand that there is equity in the law. Um, there's restitution um, across the law when harm has occurred. So, so, so this is simply a conversation um, about making sure we give people um, their due for the harm that they actually suffered. And, and that's what's holding back Back the nation. And there is progress, right? Like the city of Evanston, Illinois actually passed a reparations um, piece around homeownership, quite frankly, for its citizens. We've seen cities like Asheville, North Carolina, here in our own state, pass, um, you know, efforts towards reparations. So we see increasingly this progress. I think what we have to do is capitalize. Everyone is expecting the summer of last year to just be a memory. That was a mobilizing point for our community. We said enough, we said enough, and we said we're gonna chart forward in a different path. And we have to continue to push with that same kind of determination to build for the opportunities that we are deserving of so that the future generations of black people are not burdened with yesterday's discriminatory um, outcomes. Yeah, and I'd love to see a, a higher level of, of creativity uh, and, and direct impact around reparations because I, I am seeing all these kind of local reparation kind of efforts and and you know if you look at places like Asheville and I, I, I certainly commend these places for actually 
you know, saying the word reparations and things of that nature. What I think we, we need more of, though, is that, you know, in looking at some of these programs, I mean, a lot of them are things that they these communities should have been doing anyway, right? I mean, and, you know, if you look at Asheville, for example, uh, you know, saying that, hey, we're going to, you know, make look at how to get more economic opportunity and, and uh, for the Black community and, you know, homeownership and things of that nature. These are things that I, I would expect to be a part of the, the kind of culture and the operations of the community. And so, I, I certainly hope that that you know we we know what we're facing at the federal level sometimes with this divisiveness. It'd be great if the local governments could really really you know continue on this path to push for more and more creative ways and direct ways around reparations. So I'm and I'm looking at Durham, you know, where I'm sitting at as as hopefully one of those places that that we need to be pushing to to be out at the forefront because we certainly uh, got a whole lot that needs to be repaired uh, from past harm. Yeah, and, and, and we have been um, working on a proposal around homeownership specifically. Um, we've worked with organizations to create a program that would create targeted down payment assistance since so many of these challenges are rooted in housing policy. We think that the federal government needs to invest $100 billion in targeted down payment assistance, and we need to target it by first-generation homebuyer. We know that um, many Black Americans, again, lack the ability to save for down payments or they lack the ability to borrow from previous generations home equity for a down payment. So we believe that a first generation targeted down payment assistance program and the cancellation of $50,000 in student loan debt are, are critical steps in, in this conversation. All right. Well, thank you both. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but this has been such a riveting and thought-provoking conversation. We are going to have you both back on because there's still so much more to explore, but we can't thank you enough. Our guest, Attorney Nikitra Bailey, Senior Vice President of Public Policy at the National Fair Housing Alliance, Dr. Henry McCoy, Professor at the NCCU School of Business and former Assistant Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Commerce. And as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the Legal Eagle Review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.